1: At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? Hi there, Josh Plank filling in for Jim Henson this week on the Second Reading Podcast. Filling in for me, I guess, <laughs> is Ross Ramsey, executive editor of the Texas Tribune. Thanks Did for joining I sign us. I up
0: for that? Is that how I signed up?
1: Well, I think you're a much better replacement for me than I am for Jim, but I'll, we'll just move forward. We'll do our best. Yeah. <laughs> So I like to think that Ross knows everything about Texas politics, because he's done nothing over the last six years or so to assuage me of that notion. So no pressure, but I think we'll, we'll cover a lot of right. ground. You're going to find out there's not very much to know about Texas politics. <laughs> well, that's, well, that's good for the students <laughs> could, in this class, happen, right? I guess. Yeah. So as you're all probably aware at this point, the 30-day special session of the Texas legislature, called by Governor Abbott, convened on Tuesday, uh, first to address sunset legislation, which we talked about or bored you to death over last week, and presumably soon they're going to take on the governor's, you know, other 19 agenda items. So first things first, is 20 items a lot? I mean, like historically, pragmatically? You know,
0: historically it's mixed. You know, the original special sessions back in the day when they were first starting the state, some of those had hundreds of items on Mm -hmm. them, and they were, you know, writing a constitution and basically filling the law books the first time. In modern history, special sessions have usually been about one or two or three things. You know, Mm -hmm. there's some existential crisis going on or something that politically a governor wants to get done. And usually there's a very sharp focus on
1: one or two or three items. That's interesting. I mean, I think the term you use, existential crisis, is is really interesting because it's sort of like, you know, what existential crisis are we we facing right now that requires... Well, for five agencies, we actually do have an
0: existential crisis. if that's the one item. Yeah, if they don't pass the sunset bill or, you know, as I like to put it, they're they're not really doing the sunsets of the agencies. They're not Mm -hmm. reviewing the agencies. They're just changing the expiration dates on the milk cartons and keeping those agencies alive for two years. If they don't do that, those agencies fail to exist. So that one's actually, you know, falls into that emergency status. Greg Abbott has taken the opportunity to... Well, if we're going to be here anyway, let's do some other things and added, you know, a list of things that look like they would belong on political mailers in 2018, which, in fact, may be part of the point.
1: Right, exactly. So, well, what about pragmatically? I mean, you know, we'll kind of get into some of the details of this, but I mean, 20 items. I mean, I guess, you know, historically they taking on more items at times, but this just seems like a lot to take on in a 30 day period, given right. the pace at which the legislature generally works.
0: There are a couple of problems here. One of them is that many of these items are large controversies that they couldn't settle in 140 days in a regular session. An example is the bathroom bill, mm-hmm. another example is the property tax bill, um, uh, vouchers, and some other issues that they couldn't get to a resolution of. In the 140 days, and I should say, at the end of 140 days, they didn't look like they were.
1: Yeah, they weren't close close a lot to a the resolution. Right. Run.
0: You know, I think arguably on the property tax bill, you know, that's negotiably close. Uh, it seems like it. bathrooms I mean... seems to be ideologically different. Uh, the House took two votes on vouchers and very clearly said to the Senate and to the governor, uh, "No, thank you." You know, more than 100 votes in the House. So, and then there are a bunch of issues or a couple of issues that haven't been considered yet. One that really caught my attention was that the governor put a $1,000 per teacher pay raise on the call for the special session. And when you crack into this a little bit and find out what they're talking about, um, got a hold of the governor's PowerPoint presentation to legislators. And it turns out not to be exactly $1,000 per teacher raise. It turns out to be $1,000 on average. Right, I read that. But it's a merit raise. Some teachers would get a lot, some teachers would get none at all, mm-hmm. and it would be funded entirely by local school districts. Um, so if you Now, is do... that
1: on the governor's original propos- you know proposal for that, or is that based on the lieutenant governor sort of- No, it's that's the
0: governor's that's original the governor's, proposal. Okay. Um, there are about 340, 350,000 teachers in Texas, so you're talking in a two-year budget cycle about $700 million, give or take. And so you're asking the local districts who say they are cash-strapped and don't have the money to pay for this- and then there's a bunch of policy stuff. If everybody in the legislature agreed on this, they haven't had any hearings, they haven't heard any testimony, and you're giving them thirty days to take on a really, really big change in how we compensate teachers. So some items like that haven't been heard
1: yet and would really be a, a lift in thirty days. You know, let me I mean, let me just pinpoint something because I hadn't really thought about this. Right? I haven't asked I haven't found somebody good to ask this question to yet, so I'll ask it to you. I mean, as a technical matter, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, you know, most of the, a lot of the regular session understanding over time has to do with understanding the rules, right? Right. How many of those rules carry through to the to the special session? I mean, it seems like in the House, they pass sort of the same rules, but they're sort of, you know, there's there's got to be three readings of every bill, you know, there's supposed to be committee hearings, there's supposed to be public notice. That was a big deal yesterday, right? Basically In the Senate, in the right. Senate right, that they weren't going to have, right. you know, sort of a public notice period of like 48 hours, right? So, I mean, how much do the rules hamstring some of the possibility of even getting through all this? You know, the rules are... You know, basically there to enable
0: minorities, political minorities in the House and the Senate. So, you know, if you just do things by the numbers, if you've got half plus one, Mm -hmm. you know, a majority in either place, you could run ragged over this stuff. They've set up a series of rules and procedures where you can't do this kind of thing very quickly. Um, You have to do this, you know, in this process. And then they have rules for how you override rules. Let's ignore this rule for a while. right? And those usually require super majorities. Um, Some of them require three-fifths of the members. Some of them require four-fifths of the members. Some require two-thirds of the members, you know, just how they go. For example, in the Senate yesterday, a senator can tag a bill. Tagging a bill basically says, I want to look at this for 48 hours before consideration. Not unreasonable. um, Well, depends. depends, right? Um, The... Lieutenant Governor and the Senate wants to hurry through the sunset bill because the governor has said he will add the other 19 issues to the agenda only after the Senate has passed the sunset bill.
1: Only after the Senate. Not only the, after the Senate. Oh, okay.
0: Right. The Senate's where the sunset bill died in the regular session. So the governor wants to take the hostage away from Dan Patrick and company. Okay. So the Democrats in the Senate, who would like to slow things down, tagged it. Jose Rodriguez from El Paso, a senator... Uh, head of the Democratic Caucus tagged it, and in a relatively rare move, the Senate overruled his tag, mm-hmm. which requires, as it turns out, three-fifths of the members. Three-fifths of the members. There's 31 members. There's 20 Republicans. There's 11 Democrats. Guess how many three-fifths is? <laughs> is it 20? 20. Yeah. Voted 20 to 11 to override that veto. They sent it or to override that tag, they sent it to a committee. The committee sent it back. And on the second day, they expect to do a tentative approval of that bill. And on the third day, they'll do a third read. So there's a three day layout rule. Mm, okay. Just to give you another example here the thing called the three day rule, and it basically says a bill must be read on three several days. I didn't write this. Yeah. <laughs> but it basically, basically, when you say several days, you mean actual calendar days and not legislative days, mm-hmm. right? It takes three. Um, it takes four-fifths to override that, and the Republicans don't have the Democratic support to override the three-day rule. Mm. So they zip it through committee, they bring it back, that's the first read. Come back the next day, that's the second read. Come back on the third day, which will be Thursday, the third day of the session, they'll do the third read, and then
1: uh, Governor Abbott opens the pantry. It's really interesting, though. I mean, just even, even with the, the least controversial item on the list... being the sunset bill it's got a hundred percent approval rate right exactly but even if you just kind of lay that out and just think about the rules for that even assuming that there weren't you know let's say incentives for democrats in particular to delay and then say well now let's repeat that process with 19 other items it's hard to imagine how you fit that in 30 days right so you know at this point in the process the overarching storyline kind of heading into the special session has been this sort of increasingly public Acrimony between the lieutenant governor dan patrick and the speaker of the texas house joe strauss I mean, I guess the question is, you know And I promise I'll, this is the last historical precedent question. I'm gonna ask you because it's it's rude Is there a historical precedent for this just, type of because an- I'm old that's what it is, right? I you just said that see Fine. I didn't say that you're older than me Wow. but you're not Lander old that, but right. you're not old say So is there a historical precedent for this type of antagonism? I mean, or is this sort of unique? Uh, you know Yes to both kind of, you know, yeah. there, there
0: are always antagonistic players mm-hmm. and there are always, you know, rivalries and, you know, uh, people with different ambitions and different politics in these things. Right. Um, sometimes they don't like each other. Um, Anne Richards and Bob Bullock, you know, sort of famously didn't get along when she was governor, um, but they managed to work through that and they managed to push some things through. What's interesting about this bunch, Joe Strauss, Dan Patrick, and Greg Abbott is that the personal animus seems to have bled into policy and into some other things. You know, one of your lead-in quotes um, into the podcast is Ann Richards saying, the Republicans were all in the Democratic Party, there were always two parties here. Well, it turns out in the Republican Party, the modern majority party, there are two parties there, and Dan Patrick and Joe Strauss are pretty good avatars for those two parties. And the House and the Senate, you know, viewed you know a little loosely, but you know it works pretty well. You can look at them as the two versions of the Republican Party. And Greg Abbott's always trying to straddle this. Basically, I'm with this one, or I'm with that one, or I'm trying to get them together.
1: Well, and the thing is, I mean, something you said there about how the the personal antagonism, you know, kind of affecting the politics. I mean, or the policy in this case. You know, in some ways, right. it seems at least watching this session, part of it is that the personal and the policy really overlapped. I mean, I think from the from the outset. Strauss is really, or not Strauss, uh, Patrick has really gone out of his way to say, you know, my priorities are the governor's priorities or the people's priorities. And therefore, anybody, you know, who doesn't agree with me and this, you know, is basically on the other side. Right. And Strauss has kind of said, well, you know, <laughs> I don't agree with all these things. And so he's on the other side. I mean, his style in terms of his, you know, desire to win these sort of policy goals. I think, is and the personal have really mixed together in a way that has made that relationship obviously super toxic, right? right. You know, they, they meet
0: every Wednesday morning for breakfast. Um, it's a long tradition. The governor, the lieutenant governor, and the speaker, and lately, the controller. Yeah. Um, and it's a longstanding tradition. Let's sit down and figure this out. Where are you going? Where are you going? What's happening this week? Blah, blah, blah. It broke down, it turns out. We asked for their records, their mm-hmm. calendars uh, toward the end of the session, you know, what's going on here. And it turned out that the breakfast broke down somewhere in April, and they stopped even, you know, having eggs together. So, you know, if they're not sitting down and talking, you know, when you get to the end of the legislative session when, you know, various parties, notably the governor, were trying to kind of put Humpty Dumpty back together again and get the sunset bill out and get some other things done, the relationships that you would rely upon to
1: do that weren't there, and the session fell apart. It's pretty amazing. I mean, you kind of think, I always say, you know, you sort of, there, there are two things you can't control. You can't pick your family and you can't pick the people you have to work with. So you just right. kind of have to deal with it. Right. And so it's kind of amazing that you have these sort of, you know, pretty accomplished, obviously, you know, successful politicians and they can't just meet for breakfast.
0: They have kind of a bullying, and this is true in, on, on various levels of politics right now. There's sort of a bullying way about politics right
1: now. It's not collaborative so right. much as it is do what I say or else... X. And you see that with the, the recent uh, failure in the U.S. Senate of health care, right? right? That's sort of a good example of that right. where Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said, here's the bill, take it or leave it. And his caucus said, we'll leave it. Governor Abbott is out with a statement he made on
0: Monday, the day before the session began, to the Texas Public Policy Foundation, mm-hmm. a conservative think tank right. here. Uh, he said, I'm going to be keeping a list and I'm going to be scoring the members on how they vote on this thing and, you know, This was an obvious threat about twenty eighteen. Um it's the kind of thing it's basically a do this or else. Right. And and you know, without getting into, you know, all of the why he's doing that, you kinda look at how the politics go together. If you're trying to bring people together, you're basically forcing them into a polarity, you know, where some of them are you're either with me or against me. Right. And he's hoping he's got more than half so, with
1: him. I was going to ask you about that later, but since you brought it up, I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, it seems so the you know, he's made so I mean the the choreography of the last week has been really interesting, which is, you know, the se- the special session was set to start Tuesday, the Friday before that, Governor Abbott announces his re-election uh bid. I think on Monday was the campaign, you know, finance filings where he says I have 41 million dollars in the he bank. 10 million dollars right. in 12 days. Is it 41 million total or 46 yeah, right. yeah. or yeah. I guess he was at 36 and then he probably spent some or whatever. It's, a, it's 1 billion It's a ton it's a point is I mean it's hard to put this stuff into context for people. It's a ton of money. Right. I mean it's a it's a huge huge war chest. So you you know they they release that those numbers, and then there's this sort of promise to keep the lists of who's with him and who's against him. What you know what do you what do you make of this? And do you think the legislators are are sort of taking him seriously? I mean through the the context for this, I think for a lot of people is sort of the last session, right? Mm-hmm. When a lot of when you know Abbott the first time pushed sort of a a. a I don't want to call it universal pre-K, but an expanded pre-K program in Texas, right. which is not popular among the Republican base at all. You know, yeah, it's a, a strange thing for a Republican governor a very, to go after, but he wants to be an education governor, and he yeah. said so. I think there's—I mean, I think you can come up with a reason why it makes sense for him to do it. But needless to say, a lot of House member, a lot of members, you know, in his party had to vote for this thing that they knew was not going to be popular back in their district, and the the grumblings were, "Where was the governor in my reelection campaign last time?" And so now he's making, I don't know whether this, I don't think that this really necessarily plays into this current threat per se, but I guess what I wonder is, you know, how seriously do you feel like, especially House members, because the Senate is really kind of, I mean, for all intents and purposes is is lockstep with Dan Patrick on most of these issues, you know, for how we proceed through this, but within the House, how seriously do you think they're taking the governor's threat?
0: Well, you know, this is another relationship problem. You know, Mm -hmm. if you go back to that pre-K thing in 2015, toward the end of the session, the governor got the Republican caucus in a room at the Capitol and said, stay with me on pre-K and I will protect you and I will campaign by your side. Mm -hmm. I got your back in your elections. And they said, reluctantly, some of them, uh, because they were getting flack, particularly from the most conservative voters in their districts. They said, OK, and they went with the governor on it and he did not back them up in their primaries. And, you know, they mem- they remembered that. And mm-hmm. they came back. There were several moments during the regular session in 2017, this year, where they came in, uh, they zeroed out his pre-K budget at mm-hmm. one point. Uh, there were a couple of things important to the governor that they um, voted down. And in a, one of those sort of classic Texas House symbolic votes, there was a piece of legislation popped up on a Saturday late in the session by Lyle Larson, a Republican from San Antonio, where he stood up and he said, "We got to stop this pay-for-play system. Anybody who gives a governor more than twenty-five hundred dollars in an election cycle as a campaign contribution should be prohibited from receiving a gubernatorial appointment to a board or commission." Um, because it looks like Larson speaking mm-hmm. still here. Right. It looks like the more you give, the better appointment you get. Uh, right. This is a long-standing. Commentary, but it's odd to come from one of the governor's own party. Right, and more than a hundred House members voted Larson.
1: Mm-hmm. That's
0: you know, which the is houses, pre- the house pretty is hard. Of, to, it's pretty house. hard
1: to pass ethics legislation of any kind, let right. alone that universally.
0: It's a big fat institutional middle finger. Right, and that is a pretty good description of of where they left the session. And then in the interim. One of Abbott's comments along the way between the regular session and the opening of the special session was, We wouldn't be here if legislators weren't so lazy. So they, I mean, you, the legislature keeps their own scorecards. Right. And they're keeping score on the governor and they're saying, This guy doesn't have our back. He's antagonistic. Uh, we'll help him where we have to. You
1: yeah, know, that's a really interesting, I mean, that's really. A nice uh, connecting of some of the dots over the course of the session and that's, that sort of relationship in some ways and actually makes me sort of think about the question I was going to ask you in a different way, which is, you know, I was thinking about, you know, does does Abbott, you know, so I, I should say this. Abbott's basically made a push 20 for 20, which is we're going to pass all 20 pieces of legislation in 20 days, right. lieutenant governor sign on, he's 20, he's, you know, 20 for 20. Um, and I kind of have been wondering, you know, and before he said that, I asked this question a couple of times on this podcast and other places, you know, what's the marker for success? Is it, is it 10 items? Is it if we get these five done? And then he came out and said 20 for 20. And I, that was not what I expected, because, I mean, it's a, it's a tall order, as we already discussed. But I wonder, you know, does he even want or expect to, to pass all 20? I mean, there's two things. I mean, some in some ways, he wins if he wins, and he wins if he loses, right? Because right. even if, if, the 20, if not all 20 passes, then he can kind of point to the legislature and continue this. But I also wonder, is this about achieving, you know, 20 policy goals that he can take in the 2018 election? Or is part of this about kind of an institutional snapback? I mean, pointing to this sort of line you've drawn where the House kind of said, you know, the governor's, you know, not really... A big player in this and he's right. kind of, you know, trying to boss us around a little bit, you know, forget that. And then he said, Oh, okay, well, let's, let's do that. Let's have a more open conflict then. Right. I mean, what is this? I mean, what is this about in your mind? Is this really about the policy goals in 2018? Or is this more and it could be both, I guess more about, again, maybe snapping back this relationship and regaining some, you know, at least, it's not necessarily respect, but credence, you know, with the legislature in terms of, you know, accounting for the governor. I think a lot of it is, you know, where do
0: you stand? And you have to view that in the context of the 2018 elections. You know, if you look at a political election or a political year or a political map, it's easy to tell a Republican from a Democrat because they have to declare it, they hang their flag, I'm under this banner. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at a place in politics like the present where one party is dominant and really what you're covering is two parties within a party, mm-hmm. Uh, just as you did just as you know the elders, the elders among us did, you know, when the Democrats were the majority party, you have to figure out a way to differentiate this kind of Republican from that kind of Republican. right? They're not flying a flag. They don't have a red or a blue flag, and, and it's a little more, more difficult to do. But if you have a governor or another leader, Patrick is who I'm thinking of, mm-hmm. putting down a marker and then saying, "Are you here or are you there?" That marker serves as a guide to some voters, the Patrick voters, the Abbott voters, whoever, uh, when they go into the primaries in March. So if you get a list of 20 things like this list and you say, however these issues come out, this is how the members of the legislature are arrayed ideologically as you go into the primaries and you know sort of who your targets are and who your friends are. Mm -hmm. That's one way to look at it. There are a couple of things in here that I think the governor would really like to pass. Um, The tree ordinance. Well, he's got this list of things. The tree ordinance is actually one of them that are limits on local control. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Greg Abbott's actually been pretty clear about, you know, in articulating his view of state government. The United States is a federation and the states should take more power back from uh, that that Congress has taken up. This is his call for a convention of states. Mm -hmm. Uh, The states should pull back some powers from the federal government. And the cities and counties are creations of and subsidiaries of the state and have taken too much power away from the state, and the state ought to, you know, land somewhere between local control and avoiding a patchwork of law. So if you drive the state's highways, maybe there should just be one texting while driving law would be an example. Right. Um, so he's got this list of things that are viewed by the cities and the counties as a tax on local control, and by a significant number of legislators, by the way. Um, but I think he would really like to pass those, and I think ideologically, philosophically, he believes those things correctly place the cities and the counties in this lane, the state in that lane, and then eventually the federal government in the other lane.
1: You know, it's interesting the way the way you've laid this out is sort of the the marker in the sand thing is interesting. You know, and it's sort of something that's it's it's kind of obvious. I mean, it's I don't want to say it's kind of obvious, but you know, it needs to be stated. I mean, I I've been trying to sort of Suss out exactly what's going on here in some right. ways. And I think, you know, the first place I landed was actually is a little bit different. But it's kind of interesting to put them in contrast, this idea of drawing a line in the sand. I mean, who's with us and who's against us when the Republican Party? One of the things I was thinking about with sort of why do 20 items? Why pick the most, con- you know, basically the, the most controversial items and why say you're going to pass them all in 30 days, you know, because um, presumably you have to back it up right either you know in the primaries or you know by calling another special session and the, you know the where i came down was look you know 2018 is going to be a tough year for republicans everywhere and it's just it's just you know it's historical the president's party usually has a tough midterm election in fact as things aren't going well for the republican governing party in congress it's unlikely that what the trajectory that we've seen with the trump administration and russia and everything is going to all of a sudden just resolve not, not, itself not to mention the trajectory of all of our predictions about what would happen with trump for the right, last 18 sure. months well, right well i'll say that too there, anything could happen here anything could happen right but i would but you know originally i was thinking well you know maybe it makes sense to lay out a pretty aggressive agenda because you can say hey look you can set you know you can quarterize yourself in some way from the national republican party which texans have been pretty good about doing i mean in texan uh, public opinion itself actually makes this distinction pretty well between you know like the republicans in congress versus the state legislature right. and the people here and so part of my thinking was well maybe what they're doing is they're looking at the 2018 and saying look yeah there's all this dysfunction but we're still doing, you know, basically fine here in Texas. We're right. still running. And, you know, in some ways that made a, that argument made a lot of sense to me. But as you, the way you lay that out is sort of drawing a line and saying between who's with us and who's against us. That also makes sense. But those two goals are kind of at odds with each other. Well, so you have to look at kind of Abbott's local problem.
0: And, you know, um, various people, you know, different observers put different stock in this. Um, I think the greatest threat to Abbott in Texas politics potentially is Dan Patrick, right? And the question is, has been for a long time, is Dan Patrick going to challenge Greg Abbott? And Patrick's gone out of his way, sometimes even without being asked, mm-hmm. to say I'm not running against the governor. Right. But every time he says that, it's sort of a why did you bring it up? Mm-hmm. When you draw that line where the governor drew it with these twenty items, one of the things that did was put he and Patrick on the same side of the line, and as as the Us. I like using the word neutered, and and yeah. Well, it it you know, he's trying to eliminate any daylight between right uh, Patrick and himself,
1: any product differentiation. he stole of, his agenda. Right. I okay. mean, the agenda stolen directly from Dan Patrick, A primary
0: voter looks at this and says, you know, I don't see any difference. Let's stay with the incumbent. That's That's Abbott's hope. It also draws, you know, necessarily, and I don't know that it's animus between the governor and the speaker so much as it is, the governor is not worried about the speaker and he is worried about the lieutenant governor. It puts the speaker on the other side of the line. So the tension in state government, you know, it's always two to one somehow, mm-hmm. uh, unless it's working when it's three right. to three. and know, you got to pass all three places. Right. Um, if it's going to be two to one, you know, in Abbott's mind um, or from Abbott's position, I should mm-hmm. say. It makes more sense for Abbott to be with Patrick than for Abbott to be with Strauss. Well,
1: let me ask you the question. I'm really, I'm really interested in, especially from your perspective, because you just made that point where you always need, you know, at least two of the three, or you need really, you need. I you mean,
0: need three to three to make th- law, two to make politics.
1: Right. Exactly. Right. And I mean, one of the things I'm thinking about is going back to the the threat against House members. Is there's a sort of, I mean, I'm thinking if I'm you know, the average Republican House member. So we're not talking about and, and I guess there's this, you know, I've obviously followed this stuff closely. And if you sort of follow what's been going on in the House leading up to this, you can see a lot of, you know, interesting quotes from Speaker Strauss. Yep. You can see a couple interesting quotes from some of his top lieutenants who are basically people who he's appointed to chair committees. And they're pretty much in line with what he's been saying, but mm-hmm. a little, maybe a little bit with a little bit more wiggle room. And then, you know, you either see quotes or know basically what the far right kind of freedom caucus of the Texas House thinks. and They're pretty much in line with the lieutenant governor on right. most of these issues. Well, and, and if you know, watch them, they're, they're actually pretty
0: outspoken. So right. So
1: they're there. So we know what they it. think. But I think about, you know, you're sort of everybody else, the average House member. And I sort of am thinking about, you know, there's sort of two things going on, right? On the one hand, you sort of weigh the governor's threats and how seriously you take them and whether, you know, you take them seriously and also whether you think there's a negative consequence for you. Right. But the other thing is, this is what we call like, and, you know, if we're talking like game theory talk here, right? This is a repeated game. They're going to come back and have another legislative session and another one and another one and another one. And one of the things I wonder is if I'm a your average Republican House member, where do I come down? Because on the one hand, I can basically either be working for the governor and the lieutenant governor and just say, yeah, whatever they want is what we're going to do. Right. Or the other side of it is say, boy, you know, we're a co-equal, we're, you know, a co-equal branch here. You know, we're an equal member in the legislature. Right you know, if we just roll over on this, is this what it's going to be like forever? Because we're going to have to do this again. Most of these people plan on coming back. I mean, the vast majority are going to plan on coming back. So I guess what I wonder from from your perspective, what are you hearing from, you know, the average, you know, basically Republican members in the House on this? Where That's not something you see in a lot of the papers. Well, you know, the great test case here, we actually have a bill that has tested this for
0: months. This mm-hmm. is the bathroom bill. And, It's a thing, if I am a member of the legislature, I'm a Republican, and the bathroom situation is not something I've really thought about or worried about, you know, whether transgender individuals in Texas use the bathrooms that correspond to their gender preference or Mm -hmm. their biological sex. Right. and when That's the one of those politicians
1: are people, too. They right, haven't right. thought about this much either. Well, they haven't.
0: And, you know, uh, when we did our first polling on this, then the UT Texas Tribune poll- um, you know, That was, there was good. Of... You
1: plugged the poll, not
0: me. Yeah, we see? can stop now. See how that <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah,
0: I mean, there, there was, you know, you could tell that a lot of people were like, what? Um, they just hadn't thought about it. Mm-hmm. Didn't really have a position on it. If I'm a member of the legislature and I really don't have a position on this- You know, this happens on any number of issues. And sometimes on those, I'll just say, well, where are my voters? And this is where this gets really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. A lot of their voters are on the side of regulate this bathroom use, Mm -hmm. should correspond to biological sex. Mm -hmm. A lot of their supporters and the businesses in their communities are against it as employers and as um, people with clients. So on behalf of their employees and their customers, are against it. And if I'm a Republican member and I don't have a strong feeling about this that overrides everything else, I would like for my constituents to be harmonized on this. And because they're not harmonized, a lot of members are in this very awkward position where they are telling Joe Strauss, for example, if this comes to the floor and I have to vote in the open where my voters are watching me, I'm going to have to vote for this thing. But I don't want to vote for this thing because the employers are against it. I think they're probably right. I think it's a bigger loss there than it would be a win for the voters. But I also want to come back in two years. And frankly, if I vote against the voters on this thing, they'll replace me and whoever replaces me will come back and vote the way they wanted to. So. You know, what you're watching in the House, the House has always got something of a protection racket going on. You know, we're going to elect you speaker. You're going to protect us from some things outside. And right now, interestingly, the thing outside is Dan Patrick and increasingly Greg Abbott asking them to vote on an issue where their voters are split.
1: You know, it's really, you know, I'm going to make one observation, then, and then one, more, one more question for you. You know, what's really interesting to me in all this is with all the focus on the bathroom bill in particular, it's sort of a, a missing the forest for the, you know, trees element to all this, which mm-hmm. is, you know, I can make one prediction accurately about the special session, which is a bunch of really conservative stuff is going to pass. I mean...
0: I don't know that that's right. I think you're going to pass a sunset bill.
1: You don't think there's going to be a lot? I
0: think you're going to pass a sunset bill. And there are a couple of things that are easy to pass. There's a maternal mortality um, issue in there. There are a few things that I think the members will find non-controversial and easy to pass. The House and the Senate don't agree on bathrooms. They don't agree on property taxes. They don't agree on school vouchers. And these are issues where, with the exception of school vouchers, the governor has not planted his flag. That... He wants a bathroom bill, but he hasn't said which version. He hasn't said which version of property taxes. And until
1: they get some kind of confluence, takes all three, they're not going to pass this. That's interesting. Though. I mean, in some ways, your prediction then would almost be like an abject failure I mean, to actually really take on this agenda if that's how you think this is going to go. I think the way to bet is against all
0: 19 issues, knowing that some of them will get through, rather than to say, All 19 of these should pass and a few might not. The surprises are going to be the ones that pass.
1: Yeah, see, I would would think, you know, somewhere, I mean, I have to look at the list really... Specifically, but I mean I sort of felt like going to the session, you know Like I knew sanctuary cities was gonna was gonna pass I and mean, we'd been talking right. about it for session after session after session The bathroom bill had already come up the house had already been pretty clear. They weren't gonna do it the right. voucher I mean the voucher issue is another one where the house has historically been against it continued to be against it And you kind of knew in that context there was no way they weren't gonna deliver on sanctuary cities And I think right. if you were to look at that I know have to look at the 19 a little more carefully. I just imagine you it would be hard for me not to see them passing four or five pretty conservative piece of legislation so they can say, see, we we did it. You know, we agree I think where they could, could
0: pass four or five things. I don't know that they're going to be on the conservative end. They're not going to be the controversial issues. The that's big a... ticket items here, the headline items here are the hardest ones. And that's why they're the headlines.
1: That's interesting, though, because then that makes it a really... Tough next move, right? Does does the governor call another special session? Do does he try to proclaim that it was a success? Or does he just sit back and say, well, you know what, the legislature is dysfunctional and I'll see you later. And then Patrick says, Yeah, the House is dysfunctional. Right. We'll see and then later. they've got
0: then they've, you know, this is all a, a forward to the twenty eighteen elections. And I think to a large extent it is a forward to those elections. Yeah. And, you know, any of the nineteen issues that don't pass are certainly going to be on the plate in 2019 when the legislature comes back for right. a regular session. So part of the question here is, how long can the governor call people back to work on issues that they can work on in 2019? How urgent are the voters about this?
1: Yeah, well, and at some point on I mean, the other side of it, too, is, you know, it's not a costless move on his part, right? I mean, if he calls repeated special sessions, eventually it looks like he's doing something wrong. It's about a million dollars a pop. Every right. time you do it, you spend about a million dollars. I, we'll, I think we'll stop there. I have have more questions I want to ask, but I think we've talked a lot. I think it's a lot for for everyone to absorb. Ross Ramsey, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, and we will see you again next week.
0: The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project and the Project 2021 Development Studio at the University of Texas at Austin.